are listening to the Paranormal Chronicles radio show. Here is your host, paranormal researcher and author of the best-selling A Most Haunted House, Gavin Lee Davis. Welcome, my name is JL Davis, founder of theparanormalchronicles.com and author of the critically acclaimed bestseller that is haunted horror of Haverford West. Thank you for joining me on my ongoing journey into the exploration of the paranormal, the spiritual, and to delve deep into the big questions that need asking. This series is brought to you by sixth-books.com. Visit sixth-books.com today and explore a universe of books on the paranormal, UFOs, ancient mysteries, the afterlife, and the unknown. Visit sixth-books.com today and begin your reading adventure. Tonight we will announce the winner of the Amazon voucher, so stay tuned to the end of the show to see which follower won, plus another amazing follower will be winning a copy of I've Never Met a Dead Person I Didn't Like by previous guest Sherry Dillard. Plus, I'll be announcing a new voucher giveaway, so remember to follow this series for a chance to win cool stuff. So, follow, download, listen and explore the unknown with us. We have some amazing guests recorded and ready for upload, so never miss a show. If you've had an experience, theory or story to share, then find us on Facebook and Instagram as The Paranormal Chronicles, tweet at Paracron or email paranormalchronicles at aol.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for all the comments, messages and emails on how much you enjoy in the show. I pride myself on getting you the very best guests I can to discuss the big topics. We are fast approaching 10,000 downloads in under six months. So thank you so much for your support. You are all awesome on tonight's show. What does the Pope know about UFOs? Do our religions know the truth about extraterrestrial contact? Who are these aliens and what do they want with us? What is the Bible really saying about our origins? And what is the truth about Gilgamesh's tomb? This is a blockbuster of a show. We are privileged to be joined by Paul Anthony Wallace, an Australian researcher, speaker and author of books on spirituality and mysticism. Paul researches the world's mythologies for how they speak to our origins as a species and our potential today as human beings. Over the last 20 years, he has designed and delivered training for church ministers in the United Kingdom and Australia and has served the Anglican Church as an archdeacon in the Australian Capital Territory. He's a musician, a storyteller, an author, a mentor, a conscious breather and a barefoot walker and is the author of the new wave-making book that is Escaping from Eden. Paul's research is compelling and this interview will blow your mind as it will be Paul's research that people will be talking about 50 years from now. On with the show. Let's start with the beginning of the creation of your new book called Escaping from Eden. It's fascinating and it will be challenging for some. So how did this extraordinary journey begin? Well, the book has a few beginnings, really. At root, it's something that's been percolating in me since I was about 11 years old, which is uh, when I first encountered Eric von Daniken. Uh, he was being discussed at a dinner party hosted by my mum and dad. And my ears pricked up when I heard what he was talking about because I'd always felt there was a gap in the explanation of how we, Homo sapiens, came to be an intelligent technological race. And I hadn't heard an explanation that had satisfied me. I had, in my young years, been at a primary school. It was a church school, Church of England school. And I remember at five years old, 
becoming aware of how the school was using Jesus to try and get us to behave. And I thought it was rather poor. And so my bias was that this Christianity thing was really for the weak-minded and I wasn't going to buy into it. And I felt that the explanations we were being given for where everything came from were just a bit lazy and a bit weak. So when I heard Eric von Daniken acknowledging that there's this gap in the story and proposing a different answer, it was very engaging for me. My ears pricked up and I thought, well, this is interesting because his suggestion that we'd been helped along the way made a lot more sense to me. And I read his book when I was 11 years old and was very intrigued by some of the evidences that he was finding that pointed to that kind of a conclusion. And so that percolated in me for a while. And in a roundabout way, it actually led me to becoming a Christian, which sounds <laughs> funny after what I've just said. But after a while, I realized that though he was answering some questions for me, my ultimate questions of where everything came from hadn't been tackled. And my pondering on that actually led me to becoming a Christian. And uh, after a couple of years, I went into the world of ministry, and that was my work for a very long time. And I got fairly busy with that work, but not so busy that I didn't notice that my Christianity hadn't answered all the questions that Eric von Daniken had raised. So those issues that he talked about in his book have just sat with me for all this time since I was 11 years old, just waiting for me to go back to them and have another think about them. The book was really sparked into existence by an ultimate Frisbee injury, I call it in the book anyway, it, which is really a code for a number of occasions when the universe has gifted me with a bit of time and time enough actually to go back and think about things and do some study. And so when I had this, this most recent ultimate Frisbee injury, reality was a tough work assignment uh, with a bit of workplace bullying thrown in. And it was in the aftermath and recovery from that that uh, I decided I wanted to give some time to these questions that had sat with me for so long. But there was something else that had caught my attention in the meantime that made me want to look at these things again. And that was, oh, it's 10 years ago now, Pope Benedict XVI convened this colloquium. He, he called on the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to convene a, a colloquium, and it was a five-day closed-session symposium of top theologians and scholars to discuss, and they made absolutely public what they were talking about, to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. And I was open-mouthed when I heard that because yeah. Benedict yeah. XVI, bless him, the most conservative pope in my lifetime, seemed to be pushing the boat out a very long way with that. And I wondered why. And there was a long lead into that colloquium. I don't know if you remember, but there was a, a, a guy, uh, Father Jose Gabriel Funes, who's the director of the Vatican Observatory, who was prepping the press for this colloquium for about a year before it happened. And he was saying things like, we need to be ready. And the phrase he kept using was, sooner than anyone anticipates to embrace a brother or sister alien, he said. And I thought, sooner? Sooner? What, what does he know that I don't know? There was a real sense in watching this unfold that the Vatican was wanting to uh, get in ahead of time as if they were sensing that some kind of a disclosure was going to be made. And they wanted to be able to say, well, don't you remember we talked about there's really no issue. After the colloquium, there was some senior spokespeople for the Vatican came out and they were saying things like, 
Monsignor Corrado Balducci, a senior exorcist for the Roman Catholic Church. And he came out to the press and he said, when people report close encounters with ETs, um, that is not a demonic experience that they're reporting. Uh, and it's not a psychotic episode they're reporting either. They are reporting an encounter with a totally different kind of entity that deserves serious study. And I thought, well, this is this is very different from anything I've heard from the Vatican before. And then Reverend Dr. Guy Consolmagno said uh, we shouldn't even be thinking in terms of aliens, because if we find people from other civilizations, uh, they would be creatures of the same creature creator, we should regard them as brothers and sisters. And this is a huge, huge shift from where the church has positioned itself uh, through the centuries on questions of life on other planets. It was only 400 years ago, they were burning people at the stake for merely suggesting there might be life on other planets, let alone talking about contact, let alone talking about brothers and sisters. So when that happened about 10 years ago, I thought, there is something going on that I really want to find out about. But it was about 10 years before I had the uh, ultimate Frisbee injury and had the time to go back and think about it. So those were the things that were all percolating away for me that meant the moment I had an opportunity, uh, I sat down and started looking into some of these things and found that I was going on to some surprising territory. So when I sat down to do some study, I knew I wanted to go to the book of Genesis to look at some of these questions because I had just preached through the book of Genesis, which I've done a number of times through the years. And as I preached through it, I knew that I was scratching around on the surface, that there is an older narrative there that I wanted to probe. And there are anomalies in that text that just don't fit with all the familiar conventional Sunday school stories that we know of, of the creation and uh, Noah's Ark and all, all the rest of it. Anomalies that say this isn't the original storyline and there's there's something else going on here that you're missing. So what were these anomalies in the Genesis story that opened up the ET, the extraterrestrial narrative? Well, some of the anomalies are, are very obvious ones. They're all the questions that a child asks if you uh, talk about the stories from out of Genesis. So uh, you read the story and a child will say, why does it say let us make if it's God speaking? Why does he say uh, let's make man to look like one of us if there's only one of him? Uh, why doesn't God make a wife for Adam? Why didn't he know that would be a problem? Or why did he make the snake? Why didn't he know that would be a problem? Or yeah. couldn't he see yeah. what was going to happen? Or if he didn't want Adam and Eve to know right from wrong, how can he punish them for making a mistake? And isn't death penalty a bit of a harsh penalty for them? And then they come to the flood. Well, why would God do that? That's genocide. Uh, or you get to the, the story of Babel. Why is he punishing them for building a building that's too tall when we've built taller buildings since then? So these genuinely are the questions children ask and that um, grown-ups have to explain away or preachers have to tiptoe around. So those are some very obvious ones where you know there's something missing. There's something missing that actually makes sense of those questions. But the one that really took me onto ET territory, anomaly of this word Elohim, which is one of the words the Bible uses for God. 
It's a funny word because sometimes it's translated as God, but sometimes as false God, sometimes as demon or chieftain or landlord. And what's stranger still is that the word is a plural. Now, I was sort of half aware of that. There are two words that Genesis uses for God. One is that Elohim word, and the other is the holy name of God, Yahweh, the name that was given to Moses centuries after all the storylines in those early chapters of Genesis. So when you see the holy name Yahweh in those texts, that tells you straight away that somebody after the time of Moses has gone back to those stories and reworked them, pulled them into a single work and put the later name for God into them to tell the reader these are God's stories. But he does it sort of so openly that any reader can say, oh, this is telling me this is not the original version. It's been reworked after the time of Moses. And as soon as you realize that, you have to ask, well, what, what were the texts he was working with? What were those stories? And you realize, well, they were the Elohim stories. Well, what about this word? Because it is a plural. It is a plural form. It takes plural verbs a lot of the time. It exhibits plural behaviors. Let us make. We don't want them to be too much like us. Let us go down and see what's happened. Oh, now they've become like us. It even exhibits plural agendas uh, and the story of the fall and, and Babel are examples of that. And after a while, you begin thinking, look, if something quacks like a duck, swims like a duck, looks like a duck, might it be a duck? What happens if I read this word Elohim as a plural? How do the stories change? And so that's the exercise that I went through when I finally had some time to study. Let me try and read the Elohim story, the earlier text, and see what emerges. And it is like brushing revealer over invisible ink because a different storyline emerges. But it's not a random storyline. It is a summary of the Sumerian creation mythology. That's what suddenly emerges as soon as you let Elohim be a plural. And that makes perfect sense because Abraham and Sarah, who are the progenitors of the people of Israel, are all descended from Abraham and Sarah. They came from a Sumerian culture from Ur of the Chaldees. So, of course, the mythologies they brought with them were the Sumerian ones. And now in Genesis, we've got a summary form, all of those familiar stories of Um, The creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the the fall, the interbreeding with another species, the flood that comes as a punishment, the limiting of human lives to 120 years, the Tower of Babel. All those stories occur in the Sumerian narratives and the Babylonian and Syrian. But when you look at their version, the original, the older version, the version that Abraham and Sarah knew, those stories aren't told as God stories. They're the stories of the sky people and their interactions with the human race in our prehistoric past. And you follow the story of the sky people and it becomes pretty clear that what you're looking at is extraterrestrial contact with ancient homo sapiens. Are there correlations in other disciplines, things that can support your evidence? Well, this was one of the really fun uh, aspects of putting the book together, Escaping from Eden, because 
first of all, as I, as I started reading the Sumerian and the Babylonian and then looking at some of the other world mythologies, uh, in particular the, the Mesoamerican, uh, the epic uh, mythology from Nigeria, the Zulu mythology, Greek mythology, Indian mythology, you find that these motifs recur from culture to culture, cultures that had seemingly no contact with each other, keep telling the same stories. But uh, as I read those, I kept thinking, I've seen this in a movie. <laughs> and so much of these ancient mythologies get re-expressed in movie law. And that got my attention onto some other fields of study. But for actual solid data, I think one of the most interesting places to go is DNA research. Because the idea that, well, the subtitle of my book is does Genesis teach that the human race was created by God or engineered by ETs? If you want to find real, credible, peer-reviewed scientists who are going to say, we think it's engineered by ETs, then you need to go to DNA research. Because in DNA research, you'll find some top authorities saying they believe the source of our genetic code is extraterrestrial. And there was some really interesting research done by a pair of researchers Vladimir Sherbach and Maxim Kulov from the Fezenkov Astrophysical Institute. And they had spent 13 years studying our genetic coding, studying in our, our DNA, and had worked out that they were looking at a non-random structure, something that could not have happened, they said, uh, naturally without intelligent intervention. They even said there's kind of like a signature in it to guarantee that we would notice that. And uh, it, it echoes one of those movies. So the movie Contact by yeah. Carl Sagan, yeah. I don't know if you remember that, that from well, about 20 years ago. Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster, that's right, and Matthew McConaughey. In that movie, it begins when a radio signal gets sent to planet Earth that the sky watchers realize is from an intelligent source. And the thing that shows them that it's from an intelligent source is repetition of prime numbers in the uh, frequency. And they say that that could not happen naturally. Well, Makulov and Sherbach say that broadcast has actually been made, but the repetition of prime numbers isn't in a radio signal, it's in our DNA coding. And they found nine repetitions of multiples of 37. And if you're not a mathematician, you might say, so what? But they say the chances of that happening, the probability of it happening, are one in 10 trillion. And they say it's impossible to go back to the old view of natural evolution with, with no intelligent intervention once you've seen that. And they're among, they're in good company in DNA research for people who are saying the source of our DNA as human beings is extraterrestrial. Francis Crick, who was half of the team that discovered the double helix structure of DNA back in the 60s, he held that view. Leslie Orgel, senior British physicist, also held that view. And the idea that the coding for intelligent conscious life has come from off planet is not fringe science. The European Space Agency has spent already $8 billion testing the theory with its Rosetta probe, which was uh, one that took 
a probe up onto a comet to look for the building blocks of life, to test the idea that they might have come to planet Earth from elsewhere in the galaxy. So DNA research, I would say, if, you, if you're looking for something really tangible in the real world, have a look at that. You made a note about acquired savant syndrome and science can't explain it, but our mythologies can. Would you be able to give a bit more insight into that? This is a wonderful topic. It's, it's another thing that I think once you've studied a few case studies of acquired savant syndrome, you cannot go back to life as usual. This is something, again, it's being studied by uh, neuroscientists around the world. It, it's part of peer-reviewed science. It's a genuine area of inquiry. Looking at people who have experienced a central nervous system injury or, or a brain event that has unlocked uh, prodigious skills of some kind or other. So one example would be uh, Orlando Serrell who was hit in the head with a baseball when he was 10 years old. And he was a perfectly normal average kid before that happened, but he had this concussion. And being 10 years old, once he came to, he decided to finish the game of baseball and not tell his mum what had happened. And he had terrible headaches for a year following. And when the headaches receded, he found he could do phenomenal calendar calculations in an instant. So if you asked him well, how many Wednesdays between the 21st of July 1919 and today, he'll tell you in an instant. What were you doing on the 10th of October 1981? He'll tell you uh, how many Tuesdays in 1966, you know, anything to do with the calendar. He's there instantly with an answer. Something has been knocked into the on position in his brain. Um, there was a guy who lived uh, down the road from me in Victoria, blanked on his name, but he was in a car crash. And when he woke up from being in a coma for a week, he signaled to the nurse to say, I'm in some pain here. Can you reposition me? And what came out came out in fluent Mandarin. And <laughs> it, he had learned a bit of Mandarin at school, but it's certainly never been fluent in it. But it was absolutely fluent Mandarin, and he was very confused and disoriented by this, and it kept happening. So he asked for a pen and paper so he could write a note. So he tried writing a note to express himself, and it came out in fluent Mandarin. Well, I'm pleased to say his Australian did return in uh, a couple of weeks' time, but he has remained fluent in Mandarin to this day, to such an extent he actually lives in China now. He, he moved to Beijing. He was a guest on a a TV show where he met his sweetheart and he's now studying some complex subject at university. Everything is delivered in Mandarin in which he's now fluent. So sometimes it's language skills, math skills, artistic abilities. These skills are suddenly switched on by an injury. Now that is completely counterintuitive. An injury to the brain ought to diminish your capabilities, not extend them. So once you see this happening, you have to ask, and this is what the neuroscientists are asking, how is it that there are higher capacities in our brains in the first place? And why are they in the off position? And is there some way we could switch them on without an injury? So science doesn't have an explanation for that, but the mythologies of the world do. The mythologies of the world say that we all have those capacities in our brains. And that in the beginning, 
we were engineered to a higher level where we had higher capacities, where we could do things like remote viewing, where we had things like precognition, but that we were dialed down, that um, inhibitors were put in our brains to bring us down to a lower level so that we could be more easily managed. That's actually part of the Genesis story. It comes in the, in the Babel account. It's there in the Mesoamerican account. It's there in the Sumerian. It's there in African mythologies all around the world. They say we were brought down to this level from a higher level. And when you read the papers of the neuroscientists talking about acquired savant syndrome, they use that kind of language. They say what we're seeing is a disinhibition of brain capacities. And when you hear that language, you have to say, well, what are inhibitors doing in our brains? Well, the mythologies have an answer. That is absolutely incredible. That has blown my mind. And I, what's interesting, though, is there's a sort of a therefore that flows from that. And I'm really interested to see that in the cultures that have those mythologies of our origins, they also have shamanic and mystical traditions that have always aimed at switching those inhibitors off so that we can operate at a higher level of consciousness once again. So I think those two things really go together. Maybe that ties in with the usage of something like DMT. Not sure if you've done any research on that, but that seems to be linked with like shamanistic practices and, and being able to see more or elevate their consciousness to a higher platform. Definitely. I think that the Mesoamerican mythology is, is very clear. This is the Mayan mythology in the Popol Vuh. They have a very clear narrative about humans being deprived of remote viewing and, and higher consciousness. They have a very strong um, tradition of using botanicals to switch those inhibitors off. But there are other modalities around the world too. Uh, Plato talked about the Kaikion ceremony, which is a tea ceremony in ancient Greece that aimed at the same thing. And then there are some traditions of conscious breathing that I'm very interested in around the world, particularly in, in Russian Orthodoxy, uh, a tradition of conscious breathing that does the same thing, that switches inhibitors off, that allows people this, this much wider perceptual field than we usually enjoy. Moving on a little bit from this, because I know your time is very precious and we're, we're so honoured to have you on the show. A lot of our listeners are very keen on like ancient archaeology and ancient civilizations and you've got some notes about archaeology of the great leap forward and the archaeology of gilgamesh's tomb if you could expand upon that for us that would be very very kind oh sure well you know there are so many places you can go and and start probing and you will come up with questions that that will put et contact on the table and one of them is the whole question of the great leap forward in the human story. How did we go from living on the planet in harmony with nature as, as hunter-gatherers, but really living in a very basic animal kind of way on the planet? How do we go from that to farming, which is the foundation of, of civilization and specialized society? And it is a huge leap forward. It was, I think, in 1997 that teams went into a place called Karakadag in southeast Turkey, and they were from the University of Norway in Az and from the Max Planck Institute in Cologne, Germany. And they identified the earliest evidence of a farm on planet Earth. And that might sound unremarkable, but what they found was 12 what had been naturally occurring plants that had been 
changed into cultivatable crops. And to do that, you've actually got to genetically modify them. You need to alter two genes in each of those for that to happen. So that's an amazing expertise suddenly to chance upon. And they said it happens so locally. Manfred Hoying, the, the leader of the team from the University of Norway, said it's possible that it was just one tribe or even one family that worked out how to do this. And not only did that family work out how to do that, but coincidentally, they suddenly worked out how to do animal husbandry at the same time. So that's an incredible leap forward for one family to make after thousands of years of wandering around, not doing anything like that. It's not only surprising that it happens there, but that very, very quickly it springs up in India, Africa, Europe, South America. All of a sudden, everybody knows how to do this. And the speed at which it moves around the planet has always been one of those anomalies that archaeologists, paleontologists have not been able to explain. So I was really intrigued when just the other week I met a guy who's a member of the Cherokee tribe. And he told me a story that keys into this. He had had a close encounter uh, in his 20s, and his family had had repeated close encounters over a 20-year period, and they were not afraid of them. And when I said to him, why was your family not absolutely terrified and spooked out by these UFO phenomena happening around your property? And he said, it's because we're Cherokee, and our mythology is that in the beginning, the beginning of Cherokee history is when craft came down to planet Earth from the stars, craft that looked like eggs, and they landed, and people came out of those eggs, and they taught us how to farm, and they taught us about hygiene, and they taught us about how to live as a civilization. And so he said, I'd always had that feeling that there was this benign relationship. And I thought, if that is true, and he said, mythologies like that are shared by all the Native American peoples. If that mythology holds real memory, that actually gives some explanation as to how this leap forward could happen in Southeast Turkey, and then suddenly in India, then Africa, then Europe, then South America, that we're actually looking at a sequence of external interventions to, to help us become a farming civilized race. And I, there was something just really beautiful about the way the Cherokee mythology expressed that. So that's one example. That's mythologies and archaeology coming together. Gilgamesh's tomb, oh my goodness. <laughs> this, this really, this gets me going because in the Sumerian stories, you've got this explanation of sky people coming and modifying the genetic coding of the primates that were living here to turn us into human beings and tweaking us so that we could just be a little bit smarter so that we could be a useful workforce for them. In the beginning of that mythology, we're ruled over by the sky people for thousands and thousands of years. And then at some point they hand over to human beings to, to run human society. And in that story, there's a crossover king. His name is Gilgamesh. And he's a hybrid person. And that's something else that recurs in mythologies all around the world, this idea that there were hybrids, people who were uh, splicings of the sky people and human beings. And they were marked them out as different in some way. And Gilgamesh was one of those figures. 
Well, Gilgamesh occurs in the oldest story in the world, the Epic of Gilgamesh. In 2003, we had a unique opportunity to test whether that's just a story or if there's really something in it. Because York Fassbinder went into Iraq with the American forces in 2003. This was the George H.W. Bush invasion. Within a couple of weeks of America going in, his team had been able to investigate this site that they'd been exploring through soil magnetization, and they had identified what looked like the tomb of King Gilgamesh. All the details of it correlated with what was in the mythology. So they identified it. York Fassbinder went on the TV, spoke to the BBC. He was, he was so excited about this incredible find, and all the evidence is pointing to this being the real Gilgamesh, the one the story was told about. And we thought, oh, this is awesome. We can DNA test him. We can DNA test the tomb and work out, is that a human being? Is it a hybrid? Because if it's a hybrid, our whole understanding of human history is going to change just like that. And then it all went silent. And in 2005, that was the next we heard from Jörg Fassbinder, and he explained that the authorities had decided it was safer to the site to protect it from looters. And so the decision was either made not to find out or not to find out in public. And in all the 16 years since, we haven't heard any more. There's been no further investigation. But really, wouldn't you want to know? It was important enough. If you think about it, it was important enough to the authorities that the examination of that archaeological site should be part of America going in to Iraq. It was done as soon as the Allies were in there, but not important enough to probe it in the 16 years since. I mean, that's an anomaly that fascinates me. If, if we did look at it, then it could unlock this totally other narrative about where we all came from, and then we would know what we're talking about. My view on that, and it is simply just a view, is that would explain Catholic 2009 colloquium. It will explain how presidents in America, presidents across the world have slowly gone from, no, there's not aliens and having a big laugh and joke about it, to, oh, we don't know, maybe. Maybe that is why currently we get these little, little bits of disclosure. The United States military saying that, you know, that they've possibly been engaging with UFOs, filming them, chasing them. So it could all possibly stem from that discovery. They know, we don't, but they know for sure that there's something different, something has changed. And that is why everyone at the highest level is preparing. One day they can impart that knowledge to us. I agree. Uh, I do think that we're in an era of soft disclosure. There's been a huge shift in culture since uh, the time when I was a boy, when governments around the world employed people to debunk close encounters and uh, debunk UFO encounters. And for some reason, all those offices were began to be vacated. Uh, and it was from around 2008 that I noticed that that was happening. And as those offices were vacated, so the move towards declassification of government files of UFOs built. And in the years since, there's been a huge release of case studies from governments all around the world where we can now go and look at cases where an ET explanation is almost impossible to avoid. So that in itself, I think, is a huge gesture of uh, disclosure. And 
you can see fairly high-ranking people now being allowed to speak about encounters, and the USS Nimitz, I think you were referring to there, is one example, allowed to speak about encounters without all sorts of horrible draconian measures being taken to shut them up. So something has shifted. There is a soft disclosure happening. And you might be right. It might well be tied in with what was secretly unearthed in Iraq in 2003. What an incredible moment it would have been to have stepped into that tomb and taken the sample. And someone somewhere knows the answer. Their life changed instantly when those results came through. And I hope in our lifetime, you know, I'm 44 you know, you only look about 35. And I hope that. <laughs> Thank you. And especially I, on a podcast. Especially on a podcast. People go out and have a look at Paul Wallace. He's on YouTube. He's every, he's on, he's on every, he's on Gaia TV, <laughs> on radio shows, TV shows. We're very honored to have him. And this soft disclosure, I hope that it starts to generate some momentum and that in our lifetime, we get more answers. Unfortunately, though, if we did get the answer, some people wouldn't be happy with that. They wouldn't be satisfied and say, well, it's a it's, it's a reason for us to militarize our satellites and spend more money on this and that. People are never going to be truly satisfied. This is the big question. OK, this is the question everybody wants to know. I implore everyone to read Escaping from Eden. It's not out till April 2020. So if you are listening to this around April 2020 or beyond that, then go and read it now. And if you're listening to it in the past, as in now, this is getting confusing, then pre-order it because this is a book you do not want to miss. This is the big question. This is the question everyone out there is right. Right, guys, get on with it. Ask a question. We will be right back after these important messages. I've never met a dead person I didn't like is the extraordinary travels of a young, alone and broke psychic in the highly anticipated new book from internationally renowned psychic, medium, medical intuitive and best-selling author Sherry Dillard. Critics have described I've never met a dead person I didn't like as an engrossing memoir, an empowering story of how a broken girl came to accept her psychic gift. A refreshing and fun read, I've Never Met a Dead Person I Didn't Like, is available through Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. How far would you go to protect the children in your care? Nyla's Babies is the terrifying, chilling book from Jack Simonson, in which a young nanny battles an ancient demon for the souls of the twin babies in her care. Critics have heralded Nyla's Babies as an impressive and vivid imagined story, compelling and devilishly spooky, shocking and haunting. Nyla's Babies is available on Amazon, Kindle or wherever books are sold. Visit CosmicEgg-Books.com for more on Nyla's Babies. Sixth Books will take you to other worlds, haunt you, open your mind and push you far beyond the veil of the unknown. Sixth Books is a leading publisher of books on the body, mind and spirit, the paranormal, consciousness, ancient wisdom and the afterlife. Explore today, learn today, open your mind today, read today. Visit sixth-books.com today. The world as you know it is about to change. 
Do you wish for more paranormal and spiritual content? The Paranormal Chronicles magazine is a free digital magazine crammed with the very best in paranormal and spiritual articles and features. No sign-up, no subscription, just free reading and knowledge for you. Read today at www.theparanormalchronicles.com forward slash magazine. Hi there, my name is Claire Waters and I would like to invite you on an incredible journey. I have written a book based on my personal experiences called Raising Faith a true story of raising a child psychic medium. It's my family's extraordinary experiences with our young daughter's ability to communicate with spirits and the inspirational lessons learned on our journey. Raising Faith is currently available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, and wherever books are sold. Join me on this beautiful and incredible adventure. For more information on Raising Faith, visit my website, raisingfaith.co.uk, or my Facebook page, Raising Faith Book. See you there. The international chart-topping, haunted horror of Haverford West has been described as terrifyingly real, a must-read, shocking and chilling brilliance, genuinely worrying, utterly frightening. Don't read before bed. Described as one of the spookiest writers out there, best-selling author G.L. Davies presents Haunted Horror of Haverford West. The true paranormal account that is shocking the world. Dare you enter? Dare you read? Haunted. Horror of Haverford West is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, and wherever books are sold. Pray you never have to live there. So I'm going to ask you now. ET species. How many of them are there? What is their agenda? And are they still present? Well, as I worked my way through the book of Genesis, it was once I saw the parallels with the Sumerian narratives, it was really like taking the red pill in the Matrix and a whole new world uh, opened up. And I realized that there are all these stories of what looked like human colonies in prehistoric times being governed by these other entities, these Elohim or these Bene Elohim, and often they would send the human beings to war against each other because evidently the Elohim were in conflict with each other. And so that, that hints that there might be more than one kind of ET presence. There is in Genesis 6, Genesis 6 the story of interbreeding, and, and that throws up a huge, great conflict. So it sounds like there's either some kind of a mutiny that's happened or it's another ET presence that's bumping up against the people who've already colonized. There's a conflict going on over how intelligent they want human beings to be. And that's that's the real story of, of the fall in Genesis 3 and the real story of Babel. There's also stories of um, wars in the heavens and this so-called uh, heavenly council that the more you read about, the less heavenly it sounds. There are all sorts of strange entities there, meeting in council, bumping up against each other. So by the time I'd got um, through Genesis and, and further on into the Bible, uh, reading it in the light of a plural Elohim, I, I realized we're looking at interactions of a number of species. That's, that's how I'm reading it. It is possible that there are some who have more positive agendas for us than others. And I, I found it rather reassuring that the first close encounter 
of the Bible is in the very first two verses of Genesis. And it is a benign interaction. If you take the view that mythologies are vehicles of ancient memory, then you have to read the creation narrative differently. And the clue that it might not actually be a creation narrative is that before let there be light and everything that follows on from that, the sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, um, fish, plant life, human life, before let there be light, planet Earth already exists and it's shrouded in darkness and flooded. And then we have a description of something. It's, it, it's translated as spirit hovering over the waters. That's exactly what happens in the Mesoamerican mythology, the Popol Vuh, those who engineer arrive and they're hovering over these dark waters and they're discussing how to nurture an ecosystem and how to nurture sentient life. And it begins to look like an intervention to nurture life on planet Earth post-cataclysm because it's in a state that the Hebrew phrase is tohu wabohu, which means in a state of devastation. And these entities arrive, they clear the atmosphere of something, the darkness. And my reckoning is that we're looking at the planet post-cataclysm, maybe the Clovis comet, maybe previous cometary impacts that have shrouded the planet in dust and soot. Nothing's going to happen until that's cleared. So that gets cleared. And then salt water and fresh water needs separating. That's how the Sumerian story starts. It's how it starts in Genesis. And then they nurture life in the oceans, plant life, and then they look after us. And to me, that looks like it looks like what we do when we go into countries that have suffered a devastation and we help that country get back on its feet and we go in with our emergency supplies and we clean up the water supply and all that. I think that's what we're looking at, that that first interaction is with a species that's seen life on Earth nearly be snuffed out. And they turned up to help us um, reestablish ourselves on the planet. So that suggests a benign relationship. That story I mentioned about Karakadag and learning to farm, that's a lovely benign thing. And it occurs in all mythologies around the world. If you go to the Popol Vuh, it talks about the Mayans learning to farm maize and to make beer. And I love that little detail. Uh, and that that repeats as well, farming and beer making. Uh, in the Zulu mythology, there's a female entity called Mbabwana Warisa who teaches farming and how to make beer. The oldest recipe for beer in the world is the Sumerian recipe, and their story is all about sky people and their contact with us. So I would regard that as benign, teaching us how to farm and make beer. And so that's part of the story. And I love that that's there because... Often when we think about uh, ET contact, you know, we think about Mars attacks or invasion of the body snatchers or something or some apocalyptic Independence Day kind of vision. And, well, there may be negative agendas out there or maybe we've been used as a workforce for other species in the distant past. I do think there's evidence for that in southern Africa of prehistoric mining that we might have worked for the benefit of others. But there is this rather nicer element to it as well. And that, um, that's, that's part of the narrative I like. With this civilization incredibly advanced, 
they find our world it's broken they fix it they start cultivating the planet they create us do you think that we were just cultivated just merely to be a workforce the word worship came from a word which was advocate which meant to work now is that a reason why these aliens they were still benign but they basically cultivated us to work for them so they gave us all the tools for the job they gave us farming husbandry they introduced fertility so that we could reproduce so we could fight the battles we could do this and that do you think there was an agenda there do you think they were perfectly benign or do you think that they used us they basically exploited us to get what they wanted and then left i actually think that's what genesis 3 is all about that whole question how intelligent do we want the human beings to be how conscious do we want them to be in the greek mythology they add to that how technological do we want them to be in those stories it seems that some wanted uh, some really lovely things for us and that some wanted us to be just intelligent enough to work for them. And you read Genesis 3 with the plural Elohim, uh, and that's the debate that suddenly emerges. And it's the debate that's it's fought over in the Sumerian narrative. So I think, um, I think there's a conflict over that. They gave us the skills. Looking at Sumerian history, they left us a lot of skills. And I think it was a case of their time was up. Whatever they needed with us, maybe they needed to go away. Maybe their attention was brought elsewhere. And they left us with a lot of skills and gifts and let us carry on to where we are now. When you think about how advanced we are, there's 8 billion of us on the planet. And we're kind of tearing the planet to bits now. Do you think they're just going to leave us alone now? And that's it. And it's up to us what we do. And we're always going to be chasing our creator, trying to find our place in the universe, maybe even possibly mirroring their existence where one day we go to a planet and do exactly what they do. Or do you think there's a possibility that they're going to come back? What have you done? Look at the mess you have made. Do you think that's a possibility? Well, I think it's a it's a question. Have they left us alone? Because my suspicion is that we have been in contact at the level of aspects of government since the 1940s. That's that's my view. After there's been this declassification of UFO cases and having having followed that storyline, I'm now persuaded that post-Roswell in 1947, there has been ongoing contact. If that's right, then the question is, well, why has that not been made public? What agenda does it serve to keep that secret. It's possible either they have come back or they've always been in contact or or others have arrived. So there's that piece of the puzzle. But I also wonder if our story is a little bit like the story of how colonization has worked on planet Earth. If we look at how we go into each other's countries and, and invade and take over and colonize and then at a later stage leave, I wonder how similar the story of our planet might be to that. Because, I mean, if you think about in, in the age of empire, we go into um, another country to use resources from that country. And it might be minerals, it might be all sorts of things, but we're there to benefit from what's there and to benefit by sitting at the top of the economic tree. And then after a while, we decide we'll pull out, we'll make it a commonwealth, or we'll just go home. And yet somehow, maybe through the pricing of those resources, maybe through banking, maybe through currency control, 
we're not there in the country anymore. We're not there showing ourselves and controlling everything by force, but we're actually still in the mix. And I, I wonder how similar that might be to the experience of planet Earth as a whole. So I, I, I wonder if, if they are still in the mix. I hope so, because I think we're going to need a lot of help. I don't think we can work this out for ourselves. <laughs> so does Genesis teach that the human race was created by God or engineered by ETs? I think if, if you're willing to accept that the word Elohim really is a plural, then you can't escape seeing that the Bible is a, a summary form of the Sumerian narrative. And as soon as you're reading that, the answer is, yes, we were engineered by ETs. And what that means, by my understanding, is not that we were created from scratch in a test tube. I think we were already on the planet in some form when the sky people arrived, but they just tweaked us a little bit to be homo sapiens as we know ourselves to be. Now, you did make a note here that the ET narrative, the role of Plato in early Christianity, points to a more populated universe and a more coherent image of God. As I did my research for Escaping from Eden, I discovered that this conversation about whether we might be in a more populated universe, whether we might be part of a wider ET family, it was part of mainstream Christian conversation for the first 150 years of Christianity. And there were significant leaders in the early church. I'm talking about people like Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Origen, and a fellow called Marcion, who were very affirming, and there were others beside, very affirming of Plato. And they would quote Plato alongside the Apostle Paul. And when they did that, they meant it as a compliment to the Apostle Paul, that they put him in the same company as this Greek philosopher Plato. And people might say, oh, well, so what? Greek philosophers were very popular at the time. But affirming Plato was significant because Plato endorsed a completely different explanation of human origins to the one that we're all familiar with. He believed in God, the creator, but he also believed that there was an intervention by other entities. And he doesn't say who they were or where they were from, but he called them children of God and that they had a role in nurturing us specifically as a conscious, intelligent technological species. And that's what those church fathers were affirming. And they did not see that in any way as being in conflict with a proper reading of the Elohim stories in the Bible. And they did not believe that the Elohim stories should be taken as accurate explanations of God. They didn't see it that way at all. Reading between the lines, there really was, well, we know there was quite a bit of argy-bargy in the early church about what place the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, should take in Christianity. Should they just be glued on to the apostolic writings to make a Bible? And those church fathers I mentioned were really saying, no, don't do that. Platonism is a much better preparation uh, for what Jesus is on about. And they affirmed his creation narrative, his interpretation, uh, which if you take it, means we're part of a wider family, we're not alone in the universe, and that was there for discussion in the beginning until about 144 AD, when the most outspoken of those four, Marcion, got excommunicated, and the whole thing became a taboo. Christians just weren't allowed to go there 
or talk about this. And you knew that because every so often people would be excommunicated or burnt at the stake who brought the subject up. And that's why that colloquium in 2009 was so significant, because it was a total shift uh, from all that silencing and taboo making. In a way, Benedict XVI was saying we need to be revisiting all those questions and looking at them afresh. What are your motivations for writing what effect do you think escaping from Eden will have on 21st century society? Well, uh, I hope that where the book finishes is with the question of so what? If we were engineered by ETs rather than created by God, what, what difference does that make? And for me, one of the differences has to do with our potential as human beings. Because if those mythologies were right, the ones that explain acquired savant syndrome, that tells us that we have inhibitors that we can switch off and that what the mystical and shamanic traditions have been on about all this time are worth pursuing, learning to operate at a higher level of consciousness. And so coming away from writing the book, that was that was the real appetite that I had. But I think I, I'm full of admiration for what Eric von Daniken did back in the 60s with his book, Chariots of the Gods, because he took a topic that seemed crazy. He took a topic that was taboo and he made it part of mainstream conversation. He broke the taboo. I mean, it was something that was discussed at my mum and dad's dinner parties. Uh, school kids would talk about it. It was on the TV and I would love for my book to play some part in breaking that taboo again and making it part of mainstream conversation. I think very often people of faith feel they can't come to this conversation. But if a Pope as conservative as Benedict XVI can say everyone should be in on this conversation, then my book is really making that same statement and offering that same invitation. So I hope I would love my book in some small way to shift the culture a bit so that we can talk about these things without being considered loopy. I think personally that your work, based on what Danikin has already done and people like Graham Hancock, I think people will be more receptive to your book now than Danikin's was in the 60s and 70s. It opened a lot of minds, it opened a lot of eyes, people asking the right questions. But now I imagine 80% of people listening to this podcast right now already believe what you're saying and you're presenting them with facts and figures and ideas and notions to cement that. And I think your book, Escaping from Eden, you could not have picked better time to release this book well, i hope that's right <laughs> it's more prevalent than ever we have social media there's groups on social media that discuss this at length there's more authors there's more podcasters youtubers and they're not yeah. afraid to discuss this work and i think going forward you will take that mantle from Daniken and graham hancock and you will present this argument and research and discussion for the next 30 or 40 years and i sincerely hope within that time we will get the answers we need. We might not get everything, but we might take those small steps, as you called it, that soft disclosure. And your book, and I'm not just saying this, your book is going to be a huge part of that acceptance. This is the information people need. If you're listening to this, pre-order it. If you're listening to this after April 2020, buy it, read it. This is the book that is going to change an entire generation. And I'm calling that now. What's the date today? It's the 10th of September 2019. And I'm calling it now Escaping from Eden will be the book people will be talking about in 50 years time saying that is the book I read. That is the book that changed the world. And I'm calling it now, Paul. 
Oh, I love that dream. I love that dream. I'd say there's one other thing I would love to come from the book, and that is that I'm having more and more contact with people who have had experiences that relate to ET contact. And in the past, they have been so isolated by those experiences because they think if they speak about them, they're not going to get jobs. They're going to be ostracized. People are going to think they're idiots. And I hope that if we can make this more a part of mainstream conversation and as more data comes out, I would hope that we can actually listen with respect to people who've had experiences and had encounters And we might learn something from that. We really impoverish ourselves by laughing at people instead of listening to them. And so there's, I have to say, there's kind of a pastoral aspect to the book as well, wanting to open up the conversation in that way too. Well, if you look at your history and what you've done with your life, this is a big step for you. You were taking what you've learned that you preach and practice on a daily basis, and you've kind of turned it inside out and said, let's look at this from a different perspective. Let's look at this a bit differently. Let's change how we ask some of the questions. And a lot of people that I speak to are so on board with this idea, but it just feels right. There's people listening right now going, this is right. And there's more and more people now than ever that are into this, that believe this. And for all the naysayers and the doubters, they just poo-poo us, rubbish, what a load of rubbish. How do you know? Nobody knows. We learn things every day. And I say it time and time again. I feel like I say it every day. There is not a person alive that understands the intricacies of time, space and the human mind. We simply don't know. And every time we answer something, we open another door to more questions. I think we are trying to imitate our creators. We're obsessed with space. We're obsessed with harvesting everything we can from the planet. It's minerals, gold, overpopulation. We're a very creative society of people. We're constantly pushing our boundaries of knowledge, of science and medicine, because I think we know we have seen this happen before and we're trying to replicate that. And one day we will travel the stars and we will be like our own makers and we will discover a new species. And so the process begins on and on and on. So how can people keep in touch with what you're doing? How can they share in your journey and make contact with you, find out more? Well, first of all, there's my website, which is paulanthonywallace.com, and it's Wallace with an I-S. And if you go to YouTube, tap in Paul Wallace, you'll find my channel there. And so there's new material going up on the website and on the channel from week to week that keeps you in touch with what's happening as the launch date for the book approaches and all the work that's associated with the book. Absolutely superb. And I cannot implore people enough to go and check out Paul Wallace's YouTube channel, The Fifth Kind TV on YouTube. I've watched the videos twice. The presentation is superb. Paul's delivery of knowledge is superb. The discussion in the comments is superb. Head over to there now. Head over there to Paul Wallace. It's on YouTube channel and the Fifth Kind TV and subscribe. I know that Paul has got this huge wealth of content, but he's slowly dripping out there as we get closer to escaping from Eden book launch. So get on board now. Learn as much as you can now and then you'll have the book as well. So you'll have the book, Paul's website, the YouTube channel, everything there, all educational, all there for you to learn from. And head over to www.paulanthonywallace.com. That's Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S.com. 
gmail.com keep in touch with paul if you have an idea or a theory or an experience you'd like to share get in touch with paul he will love to learn from you he'll love to chat to you and discuss his favor and you've got a podcast coming soon yes yes i've been doing some collaborating with uh, tony barrett of the fifth kind tv on youtube and we're putting together a regular podcast and i'd like to tell you who our first guest is i, I i'll just hold back on that but he's he's a fascinating he's a fascinating person you'll want to know when that happens so keep an eye on my youtube channel and you'll know when the podcast is about to start oh my god it's it's danakin isn't it <laughs> no I'm teasing, I, I, can't say. I'm teasing. I can neither confirm nor deny you'll just have to keep an eye on the channel and find out well there's a, there's a wonderful <laughs> gentleman who's also been on the show and i think i need to get you two together and that is david j moore who wrote evolutionary metaphors oh about yes it. i have yeah. his book i need to listen to that conversation i think you know both of you have written from different perspectives that actually complement each other yeah. really really well and it's interesting i just being a little bit aware of, of that book already how many areas of life these questions touch upon when i talk to other people who are discussing notions of et contact they are all interested in human experience human consciousness all the same topics seem to join up and i love what david's done in his book because there's that wonderful fusion happening there too there's more focus on the subject now than ever before i can't say too much my new book coming out in 2020 it's about aliens. Um, yes, it's going to be controversial. I'm just going to tell everyone off the bat. If you've read any of my books, you know it's going to be controversial. This follows suit. This is my final investigation. I'm not going to say any more because we're here to talk about escaping from Eden. Gavin, I'm sure you will find what I'm finding. I mean, this is this is before my book has hit the shelves. But just as people discover the channel, see my website, see me at events, people are coming and sharing all kinds of personal stories with me of encounters they've had or even things that have happened to them that they can't explain that they haven't had anyone else they could tell and i think uh, you probably get that uh, already because of uh, the horror of, of haverford west but i think when you put out your aliens book you'll find it all the more of people just lining up to share stories that that have been so taboo they couldn't tell anyone i think people are ready there's, there's yourself with escaping from eden david j moore with evolutionary metaphors everybody's ready i think because we're on the cusp within our lifetime i'm 44 as i said within my lifetime we're going to see the truth people listening right now they're going to be perfectly fine with it business as usual I yeah we so. were, yeah we were right yeah. brilliant everyone else is spinning out they're all panicking and worrying hey what are you worrying about we knew about this since the 60s <laughs> you know hey have you not read escaping well, we'll from be, eden we'll yeah. be there to help people get it together won't we yeah we'll help you if you're about <laughs> crisis paul thank you so much for your wonderful time what i'd like you to do is is if you could just leave our wonderful listeners with a final thought something to leave them with i would go back to that subject of acquired savant syndrome because as i share those stories with people i find almost everybody can say i had this experience it was like a glimpse of remote viewing i've had a glimpse of precognition. I've had a glimpse of some psychic sensitivity that I didn't know I had before. Almost everybody has had those fleeting experiences that raise the question of what would life be like if I could operate with that much more consciousness, if I could actually elevate my abilities, not in, in the sense of being a, a you know Spider-Man or, or, or a superhero, but what would life look like if we all could operate at a higher level of consciousness. 
that's what excites me. And I think all of us have had glimpses of that and enough for us to ask that question. Absolutely phenomenal, Paul. Thank you very much. Escaping from Eden is the book. You need to read it. Paul, thank you so very much. I know you're a very busy man and I appreciate your time so very much. Thank you. Oh, Gavin, thank you. It's been so much fun talking to you. So there we have it. What do you think? Do you ever stare up at a night sky filled with a majestic spray of stars and ponder who we are and how did we get here? Do you long for us to be no longer alone or does the idea that beings far more advanced than us can emerge at any time frighten you? Paul Anthony Wallace is an amazing man. His conviction is tangible. You can feel his faith in his research and in his every word. The time is right for his message. Escaping Eden is set for release in April 2020 and visit Axis Monday Books for more information or go over and see Paul's amazing work at www.paulanthonywallace.com. Escaping Eden is making some huge waves as you will see so make sure you get your copy. Search Paul Wallace, Wallace as in W-A-L-L-I-S on YouTube for more amazing videos that form the basis of Escaping from Eden. Paul has written for the free digital magazine, that is the Paranormal Chronicles magazine. It's free, no sign-up or subscription, and just jam-packed with articles on hauntings, cryptids, UFOs, and spirituality. Head over to www.theparanormalchronicles.com forward slash magazine for your free magazine. Issue 4 is about to be launched, so you'll have tons of free paranormal content to read over the four issues. So visit www.theparanormalchronicles.com forward slash magazine today now it is giveaway time if you're new to the show then this is what we do every month one of our followers to the series is chosen at random to win a sick hyphen book book so thank you to loopy misfit who won last month and for posting a picture of haunted horror of haverford west on facebook thank you so much and glad you enjoyed on top of this now and again we'll do a bonus giveaway and over the summer the prize was a 25 pound or dollar amazon voucher Remember, you must be a follower for a chance to win a book in our monthly prize giveaway or to win a bonus prize. So if you're listening, then press follow now. Not only will you have the chance to win cool stuff, but you'll never miss an episode. So just follow, okay? No catch. Just get on board the fastest growing paranormal podcast out there. So the winner of the monthly book giveaway, a copy of Sherry Dillard's I've Never Met a Dead Person I Didn't Like is Moira Rook. That is Moira Rook, M-O-Y-R-A-R-O-O-K-E. If you could contact us so we could send you your prize, that would be marvellous. Thank you so much for following and supporting Moira Rook. And the winner of the £25 or dollar Amazon voucher is... Oh, I love this name. Billy Bigfoot. That's Billy Bigfoot. If you could also contact the show so we can arrange your prize, then thank you very much. Congratulations, Billy Bigfoot. Thank you to everyone that follows and supports. Don't be too disheartened if you didn't win, as in December, we are going to give away two Amazon gift vouchers. That's right, two vouchers for two of our lucky followers. So make sure you are following for a chance to win and listen to our December show to find out which of you won. Remember to share the show to your friends, download and follow. Enjoy a huge series of the very best in paranormal and spiritual content. Let me leave you with this. Paul's interview, his research in Escaping from Eden, got me thinking. Maybe after all we are supposed to know. Maybe it's not so much of a mystery after all. We just needed to ask the questions differently. After all, life will still go on regardless of our origins. And if other alien beings helped us along the way, 
does not diminish the power of any god any less. It's an amazing time that we live in. I want to leave you with this quote. It's from Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. I think this is worth pondering, for maybe soon they will return to see how we've got on. Thank you for listening. Sleep well.